Man, what is good, fam, It's your boy, Big L, man, with another episode of the Page Turners Podcast, man. First off, I want to say thank you to everyone, man, for sharing with me while I was finishing up the semester classes. When I got my syllabus for all my classes, I didn't realize what the workload was going to entail, and it was a lot. It was a lot, man, that I had to do. It was a lot of work, a lot of reading, a lot of writing, but I did very well on all my classes, so I kind of had to take a pause on podcast, man classes, but your boy's back, uh, back with episode 5, I'm excited, I thank everybody for bearing with me in the midst of this, uh, this brief little absence, man, just trying to get some things moving, man, doing some things well, um, just want to say thank you to all you guys for that, also, it is crucial, man, that Share this information, man. Share this podcast. Subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It's on all them genres. It's on Spotify, Google, uh, everywhere you can find podcasts. The Page Turns Podcast is there. This podcast is important because this podcast is crucial for racial literacy. Racial literacy is giving people the information needed, clear and concise, to be able to navigate in this global system of white supremacy. Racial literacy is cutting through all of the nonsense, not giving you a bunch of watered down analogies and metaphors, but allowing you to create a foundation of understanding to be able to navigate this crazy behind world, man. With all that said, let's jump right in. We are currently in uh, my book, man, because I don't want to give you all the wrong information. Okay. Okay. In chapter 3, the last section that we read was titled Hot Water. Hot Water, we were talking about this uh, Tobin who owns the mobile mobile home park, man. He's the owner of the trailer park. My man lives 70 miles a day, visits the trailer park every day except Sunday. Uh, He's a trash slumlord who has been operating and allowing people to live in this trailer park, man, under really shysty, shysty circumstances. Um, And in this section of the book, we've seen how Tobin has been forced to go and sit in front of the city. 
these folks in the city have been looking to hold Tobin's feet to the fire to get him to clean up his mess, to get him to do the things that he needs to do to transform that mobile home park. One quote, man, one thing that we highlighted last time was, in an average month, 40 of Tobin's tenants were behind. Nearly one third of the trailer park, the average tenant owed $340, but Tobin only evicted a handful of tenants each month. A landlord can be too soft or too hard. The money was in the middle with a third route and his tenants were grateful for it, though often not at first. So he was willing, man, to do the little things in order to, you know, keep the tenants there. But it wasn't on some, I'm being real generous and being nice to the tenants and gracious and loving. It was on some, these folks ain't got nowhere to go, so I can get them to do whatever I need them to do. And knowing that they're ultimately going to pay their rent. They may not pay it though on the first, but they're going to give it to me soon. And he was able to do that to keep that type of resources coming, man. <laughs> Here we go. Let's dig in. We are on chapter 40 of Evicted by Matthew Desmond, man. Ah, Matthew Desmond is a Princeton sociologist and MacArthur genius. Uh, in this particular book, he follows eight families in Milwaukee as they each struggle to keep a roof over their head. So we're going to dig in and finish chapter three and probably dig in chapter, chapter four tonight also, man. Again, this is your boy Big L, host of the Page Turners podcast. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in. And the text reads, He took a different tack with Lorraine Jenkins. A month before the license committee had rejected Tobin's renewal application, he had given her a ride to eviction court in the Cadillac. Lorraine received SSI for learning impairments attributed to a childhood fall out of an attic window. Her monthly check was $714. Her monthly rent was $550, utilities not included. So let me stop right there, man, and just read that one more time for you. Her monthly check was $714. Her monthly rent was $550, utilities not included. Lorraine had been late with the rent several times before Tobin finally took her to court. It's just hard to give up that rent, Lorraine admitted. You got to wonder if the street people don't have the right idea. Just live on the street. Don't have to pay rent to nobody. She sat in the passenger seat while another tenant named Pam Rinky, a pregnant woman with straight cut bangs and freckles, sat in the back. In court, Tobin offered them both stipulation agreements, a civil court's version of a plea bargain. If they stuck to a tight payment schedule, Tobin would dismiss the eviction. If they deviated, Tobin could obtain a judgment of eviction and activate the sheriff's eviction squad with something called a writ of restitution without having to take Lorraine or Pam to court again. 
Throughout his fight with Wiskowski, Tobin had worried that tenants would hold their rent until the fate of the trailer park was settled, but most tenants were right on paying. Lorraine wasn't one of them. Already behind, she had withheld June's rent because she didn't know if the park would be shut down. If she had to move anyway, she figured, she might as well pocket the 550. Lorraine was pushing her luck. Besides owing back rent, she had been one of the critics who had appeared on the nightly news, where she admitted to seeing prostitutes and drug dealers in the park. Phyllis Gladstone, the most vocal supporter of Witzkowski, had put Lorraine up to it. When Tobin found out about everything, he recalled that Lorraine hadn't fulfilled her stipulation agreement. That meant he could ask the sheriff's eviction squad to remove her. So he did. Soon a letter from Milwaukee Sheriff's Office arrived in Lorraine's mailbox. Printed on a bright yellow sheet of paper was the following message. Current occupant. You are hereby notified that the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Office has a court order, writ of restitution assistance, requiring your immediate removal from the premises. Failure to vacate immediately will be calls for the sheriff to remove your belongings from the premises. If an eviction is necessary, risk of damage, damages or loss of property shall be borne by you, the defendant. After delivery by the sheriff to the place of safekeeping, movers will not take food left in your refrigerator or freezer. Remove food items. The words had terrified Lorraine, it showed. Her emotions projected onto her face like a movie screen. When she was happy, she beamed, flashing a gap-toothed smile. When she was depressed, her whole face drooped as if being pulled down by a hundred tiny lead sinkers. At 54, Lorraine lived alone in a clean white trailer, though she prayed to one day be reunited with her two adult daughters and her grandson, who along with God occupied the center of her universe. She was a tub belly with a broad face and freckled white skin. Years ago, she had been gorgeous and liked to dress in a way it made boys lean out of their car windows. Lorraine still cared about her appearance and would leave her eyeglasses at home because she thought they made her look like a dead fish. When she wanted to look nice, she put on jewelry she had acquired as a young woman, using safety pins to expand the necklace chains so they fit. Smelling of sweat and vinegar, her brown hair in disarray, Lorraine stepped into the office ringing a yellow paper like a dish rag. After a brisk exchange, Tobin led Lorraine outside and called after Susie. Susie, Susie, Tobin yelled. What, Tobin? Take her to the bank, will you? She's going to get some money for the rent. Come on, Susie said, stepping briskly to her car. When Susie returned with Lorraine, Tobin was in the office, shuffling through papers. How much, he asked Susie. I have 400, Lorraine answered. I'm not calling off the eviction, Tobin said, still looking at Susie. Lorraine owed another 150 for that rent. Lorraine just stood there. Tobin turned to Lorraine. When can you get me the other 150? Tonight, okay? Tobin cut her off. Okay. You give it to Susie or Lenny. <laughs> Lorraine didn't have it. She had used 150 of her rent money 
to pay a default utility bill with the hope of having her gas turned back on. She wanted to take a hot shower, scrub away the smell. She wanted to feel clean, maybe even something closer to pretty, like she used to feel when she danced on the tables for men back when her daughters were babies. She wanted the water to soothe the pain in her fibromyalgia, which she likened to a million knives going up her back. She had prescriptions for Lyrica and Celebrex, but didn't always have enough for the copay. Her hot water would help, but 150 wasn't enough. We Energies accepted her money, but didn't turn her gas on. The rain felt stupid for paying. Susie made out a receipt on a piece of scrap paper and stapled it to Lorraine's eviction notice. You should go ask your sister for the rest, she suggested, picking up the fax machine's phone and dialing a number she knew by heart. Yes, hello? I need to stop an eviction at College Mobile Home Park, Susie said to the sheriff's office. For Lorraine Jenkins and W46, she took care of her rent. Office Susie had canceled the sheriff's deputies. But Tolerant could reactivate it if Lorraine didn't come up with the rest of what she owed. Lorraine sulked back to her trailer. It was so hot inside that she thought lukewarm water might run in the shower. She didn't turn on the fans. The fans made her dizzy. She didn't open up a window. She just sat on the couch. She called the local few local agencies after several unsuccessful tries. She said blankly to the floor, I can't think of anything else. Lorraine lay down on the couch, tried to ignore the heat, and slept. That's the end of chapter three. Moving into chapter four. Lorraine Jenkins, man. Lorraine was getting SSI, family, because she had a learning disability. So she's already at a disadvantage. Then add to that her fibromyalgia. She was getting $714 a month in disability. Her rent was $550. Quick math. Subtract $550 from $714. What do you get? You get $164. $164 a month is what she had to essentially live on. Chapter 4. Beautiful Collection. The day the Common Council was to decide the fate of Trailer Park Tobin Charney, dressed in a polo shirt, tan slacks, and brown loafers, sat in the middle of the front row bench next to his wife and lawyer. Large pink marble columns stretched up toward a beam ceiling with an intricate maroon and yellow pattern. A large oak desk rested in the front of the room, facing 15 smaller oak desks as assigned to each older person in space several feet apart. The night before the lawyer had submitted the amendment to the council, it came in too late for most alders to read, so the lawyers stood and cleared their throat. The addendum here formed the room included 10 steps. And these 10 steps, family, are the 10 steps that Tobin would do 
or attempt to promise to do in order to keep the troll apart. Because this is what he's dealing with now. He's in front of the Common Council and he has to let them know what he's willing to do in order to try to keep the trail apart. And here's the things that he lists. <laughs> he would enroll in a day-long landlord training class offered by the city. Crazy. Hire a 24-hour security service and an independent management company. Event evict nuisance tenants and address the property code violations. He would not retaliate against tenants who spoke out against him and he would sell the trailer park within a year. Not only was he trying to, to recoup some money, he's also trying to make sure that he makes some money for that full year. The people in this park are vulnerable, elderly, disabled, children. The lawyer concluded, noting that Tobin had worked diligently with Alderman Wyskowski to draw up the terms of their agreement. The Common Council was not happy with this midnight deal, and they argued with one another as sunlight beamed through the chamber stained glass windows. One alderman called it a gentleman's agreement. Another asked if all citizens, when called to account, could simply produce a 10-point plan. Finally, Alderman Witkowski rose to speak. Mr. Cherney has allowed a good mobile home park to move to something like this. He began, I have four mobile home parks in my district, and this is the only one with these types of problems. He looked over his glasses at the lawyer. They aren't all elderly, disabled, and children, sir. But he turned back to his colleagues. There are people with limited means and limited abilities. They would be forced to move out. Witkowski was no friend of Tobin's, but he was satisfied with the terms of the amendum. When the debate rose again, energetic and sharp, Tobin remained seated in the back, holding his wife's hands and looking annoyed. The president called for a vote. After the hearing, Tobin drove to the trailer park. He did not call everyone together to announce the resolution. He did not slide into a chair in the office and let us and let out of sight. He began evictions. The council had agreed to let Tobin keep his license only if he took drastic steps to improve the park, including forcing the troublemakers out. When city or state officials pressured landlords by ordering them to hire an outside security firm, or by having a building inspector scrutinize their property, landlords often pass the pressure on to their tenants. There was also the matter of reestablishing control. The most effective way to assert or reassert ownership of land was to force people from it. Dang. Where did my 28-day notice go, Lenny asked. He was in the office searching through piles of papers. With a 28-day no-cause termination notice, landlords did not need to provide a reason for evictions. It was an ideal way to improve, remove nuisance tenants who were current on their rents. Turning to Tobin, he said, you got a lot of 28-day notices to fill out. 
They owe me back rent, Tobin replied. Give them a five-day. They, in this Kent case, meant Pam and her family. After driving Pam to eviction court, Tobin had asked her to talk to the newspaper. She was 30 years old and seven months pregnant with a newborn twang. She was 30 years, sorry, 30 years old, seven months pregnant with a Midwestern twang and a face cut from a high school yearbook photo. She made for a sympathetic case, but now Tobin was clearing the house. Tobin looked up, Lenny, I hope the money isn't coming in slow because of this, he said. It's not surprisingly, Lenny replied. I just filled out my spreadsheets. We're looking good. Office Susie added, I had a beautiful collection. Pam tried changing Tobin's mind by signing over the hundred and... Listen to this, man. This is crazy. Lord have mercy. Pam tried changing Tobin's mind by signing over her $1,200 check she had just received as part of Obama's Economic Stimulus Act. She thought it would be enough, mainly because she thought she owed 1800 But Tobin said she owed something more like 3000 In office, Susan told Pam, told him Pam smoked crack. Jesus. Tobin accepted Pam's stimulus check, but moved forward with the eviction anyway. Pam's family had lived in the trailer park for two years. Pam and her boyfriend, Ned Crow, ended up in one of Tobin's trailers because he gave it to them. Pam and Ned had been considering moving to Milwaukee from Green Bay to be closer to Pam's ailing father when they spotted an ad Tobin had taken out in a local newspaper. They drove down to have a look. When Pam and Ned arrived at College Mobile Park, Tobin and Lenny offered them the handyman special. A free mobile home under his this arrangement, tenants owned the trailers and Tobin owned the ground underneath. He charged the owners lot rent, which was equivalent to what his renters paid. But unlike the renters, families who owned their trailers were responsible for upkeep. In theory, a family could at one time move their trailer elsewhere, but the owners knew that in practice this was impossible. Towing expenses exceeded $1,500, and setting up the trailer somewhere else could cost double that. When owners were evicted and inevitably left their trailers behind, Tobin would reclaim it as abandoned property and give it to someone else. Man, ain't that a hustle. Jeez. So you call the, 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 the trailer the handyman special. And label it as a free mobile home. <laughs> but the landlord would own the land. Knowing that you couldn't afford to pack up and move that doggone trailer if you wanted to. So ultimately when you weren't able to pay your rent and do what you needed to do. You were evicted off the land. But you were too poor to take the trailer with you. So then the trailer will go back to the landlord because he will reclaim it as abandoned property. Scum bag. You feel me? Scum bag. That's exactly what he 
is scumbag. And the text reads, At the time that Pam was facing eviction, all but 20 trailers in the park were owner-occupied. The only benefit to owning your trailer was psychological. I moved here so I could own a home, even if it's on wheels, one of Pam's neighbors like to say. Toma's mobile home giveaway sped things up. He could fill up recently vacant trailers, sometimes even junk trailers, in weeks, if not days. But hard-up families found the trailer park on their own, too, in Milwaukee and cities across the country. As affordable rental stock has been allowed to deteriorate and eventually disappear, low-income families have rushed to occupy cheap units. Nationwide, vacancy rates for low-cost units have fallen to single digits. Lenny's phone, office phone rang daily with people inquiring about availability. The phone rang before the newspaper came, and it rang after they left. The month the story aired, the trailer park had zero vacancies. The park is filled up, Lenny said with a chuckle, and we still got people calling. The rent rolls that Lenny kept for Tobin showed that in average month, only five trailers sat vacant, which would put Tobin's vacancy rate below 4%. The high demand for the cheapest housing told landlords that for every family in a unit, there were scores behind them ready to take their place. In such an environment, the incentive to lower the rent, forgive a late payment, or spruce up your property was extremely low. Figures, Ned had mumbled past a dangling cigarette when he found out Pam was pregnant with another daughter. He had made a son once when he was 16 with a Mexican girl he met at a ZZ Top concert. But the girl's family blotted him out, and Ned hardly thought about that boy anymore unless LaGrange came on the radio. After that, maybe I got punished, he once mused. No more boys. The new one would make five daughters if you counted Pam's two black girls which Ned sometimes did. Jesus. Lord have mercy. Pam and Ned had met in Green Bay after Pam's father asked Ned to tune up his Harley. Ned was 10 years older than Pam, with grease under his fingernails, brown stubble, and long hair, balding in the front. He was the kind of man who took satisfaction in leaving the bathroom door open and scratching himself in public. Pam already had two daughters, Bliss, born when Pam was 23, and Sandra two years after that. Their father, a black man, was a drug dealer who Pam had met when she was 19. Pam later learned that she was one of several girlfriends. Tell me about the time that dad hit you with the bottle and blood was coming out of your head, Sandra once asked her mother as they drove to the food pantry. She was six when she said this. Let me read that again for you, again for you family. Okay? I just want you, because I want you to, to hear this. I want you to hear the tragedy. I want you to think, what in the world 
would make a six-year-old, would give a six-year-old the ability to see, to phrase, to say these type of things. Pam already had two daughters. Bliss, born when Pam was 23, and Sandra two years after that. Their father, a black man, was a drug dealer who Pam had met when she was 19. Pam later learned that she was one of several girlfriends. Tell about the time that dad hit you with a bottle and blood was coming out of your head, says Sandra when she was six. Pam forced a sad smile. You weren't old enough to remember that. Yes, I was, replied Sandra. Sandra was the one who would squash a cockroach with a loose shoe while the other girls shuddered and clung to one another. She and Bliss were the only black children in the trailer park. Once, one of their neighbors hung a Nazi flag in his front window. Lenny didn't permit that, but he was okay with the Confederate flag as long as it was displayed underneath the old glory. No, you were just a baby now, Bliss. She was. She got so used to it. She always said blood, saw blood just pouring out of me. Pam found a way to leave him. She began working as a certified nursing assistant, emptying bedpans, mopping up puke, and rotating the invalids to prevent bed sores. She learned how to cook pots of spaghetti and macaroni salad. Her mother had died in a car accident when Pam was in high school and had never gotten around to teaching her. Her father hadn't either. He spent a lot of time in jail on drug and drunk driving charges. Pam's brother was doing better too. He was taking methadone and said he didn't miss heroin. It was a time of promise and rebirth, a time of putting one fourth steadily in front of the other. Then the ground shifted beneath. One day Pam answered the phone. A voice was saying that her brother was dead. Pam asked how. The voice said, overdose. He was 29, Pam screamed into the phone. Then she hung up and dialed another number to ask for something to keep her from drowning. The words to describe the drug crack rock gave her the impression that it was a gnarled, cringy thing. And when she held it in her hand, it could be smooth and elegant. It could look like a piece of chiclet gum, the kind that slides into a child's cupped hand out of the quarter turn machine. All those years with the drug dealer, Pam had stayed away from it. She saw how it turned people, saw what they would do for it, but she also saw the way to help people forget. There was not a day that went by that I wasn't fucked up on something, Pam remembered. And sometimes I'd be like, wow, I haven't even cried for him yet. But I didn't. Before I would, I'd go and get high. That's when she met Ned. The first year crack was the force that held them together. They lived for it and by it, raising the girls along the way. Soon they began selling it. A year after their meeting, they were caught and convicted. Ned, who had a previous drug charge, did prison time. It was Pam's first felony. She was sentenced to four years probation and made it to sit for 10 months in a jail cell, where finally she cried. When Pam got out, she tried to stay sober. 
She moved in with her straightest friend who grew up in Green Bay. But while Pam was in jail, the friend had developed the habit. Everybody, everybody I know in fucking Green Bay is on fucking dope, Pam Bennett. She asked her father to wire her $500 so she could move. And to her surprise, he did. But Green Bay was a small town. And Pam soon crossed paths with one of her former dealers. He got me hooked back right on. Pam and Ned reconnected after he was released, and Pam soon discovered she was pregnant. Ned demanded a paternity test, which confirmed the baby was his. They settled on a name, Kristen. Soon, Ned's daughter from another woman came to live with them. Laura had a small nose and freckles and was one year older than Bliss. A few months after Laura moved in, Ned left her. Pam and the other girls with a woman they had just met in the drug scene. Pam and the girls spent the night at the woman's house. Then the next night, the night after that, Pam eventually walked Laura to her mother's house and knocked on the door. She remembers standing at the door and telling Laura's mother, I'm about to have this baby. I'm homeless right now. Your old man left me. I have no money, no food, no nothing. Nothing for your kid. I'm scared. Can you please take your daughter? <sighs> Laura's mother stayed on the phone, gave them a bag of canned food, and shut the, the door. Pam and the girl stayed at the woman's house. Nan, Ned came back a month later. Yo. This book right here, man, continues to be so heavy. So heavy. How do these people, how are these people going to make it, man? And then they're reproducing, bringing children in the world in extreme, extreme, extreme poverty. Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of the Page Turner Podcast, episode five of this current book study, season two of the Page Turner's Book Study, Evicted by Matthew Desmond. Till next time, family. I'm out.